Hi, this is Marv Wolfman, uh, co-creator of uh, New Teen Titans and Blade the Vampire Hunter and many other characters. And you're listening to Funny Books with Aaron and Foley. I will be assuming the role tonight of Gushing Fanboy. I, I, I am a huge fan, Marv. I've been reading comics since 1975, and I think you have written most of my favorite comics. Well, thank you very much. I um, appreciate that. <laughs> uh, I, I, I am just a, just a huge, huge fan. You've written some of my favorite uh, issues of Avengers and Fantastic Four, and Tomb of Dracula happens to be my just absolute favorite comic book ever. Uh, I just I, I think your your run on that was just historic. Well, that's one of my absolute favorites that I've ever worked on, so I I deeply appreciate that. Can you can you tell us a little bit about that? Because I mean that 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 book was really pretty groundbreaking in terms of you know when it happened in in the timeline of comics and coming in after uh, some of the restrictions on what kind of comics could be printed. Well, I think uh, one of the strengths that we had on it was frankly that nobody was looking at it. Uh, at the at the Marvel offices, uh, we were pretty much left on our own to do what we wanted. There was no predecessor to Tomb of Dracula, even though there had been six issues before. The book was created by Roy Thomas and Jerry Conway, and Jerry Conway wrote the first couple, then Archie Goodwin, then I believe God the Fox, then I took over. Uh, Gene Colan drew them all, of course. And... But there was no predecessor to that type of book. All the horror comics that had ever existed previously were short, little O. Henry-type horror stories, or Pope, uh, Edgar Allan Poe-like horror stories. Nobody had ever done a series before, so it was, there was no nothing to look at. So, you know, when you're doing... When you take over Spider-Man or you take over a Marvel comic, you tended to write them back then in the style that they had been done. Um... You do the same with Superman or uh, Batman or anything else, unless you're completely changing the style, as uh, has been done more recently, but not back then. Without anything to sort of base it on, since I was also uh, not somebody who bothered to see the Dracula movies, um, I pretty much created my own style. So I just wrote it the way I felt it should be written. Well, and I, and I think one of the things that's so remarkable about that book is, you know, kind of the continuing agenda that Dracula has through that book. Right. And, you know, it's, uh, I mean... Yeah, he'd be, well, he is the main character, but he's not the hero. Right. <laughs> so, uh, it creates a very, very different way of having to approach it. And what I decided to do, since, again, I was not a person who had seen uh, any of the Dracula movies... What I did was just base it on the novel, and that's told from the point of view of the people pursuing Dracula or involved with the storyline, as opposed to the people, uh, as opposed to Dracula himself. 
So, you know, when you when you sat down to to work on Tomb of Dracula and you you'd said that no one was really kind of paying attention there at Marvel, what kind of inspired you to to look at this as kind of this this long continuing overarching story cuz you really didn't see that kind of continuing through comics at that time. I once I got into it, obviously I didn't begin it that way. Mm-hmm. Uh uh but once I started to get into it, what happened was I started to plot the book way in advance because my feeling was that I wanted to know the emotional um, points of the of what I was writing once I once I had a grasp of the story, so I started to plot it. On one point, it was like two and a half years ahead, and once you start thinking in those terms, um, what happens is you start thinking about a long range story. You start thinking about hitting high points along the way and where it's going to go and the changes and the ebb and flow of your character. If you are just doing it on issue by issue or even six issues at a time you can't do that you mm-hmm. simply can't because you don't you don't have a, a a large sense of the story so i was approaching it more like a novel than like uh, a series of comics you know uh, an, another thing that i think is is kind of uh groundbreaking in, in that storyline was uh dracula's son in that book uh being revealed janus. as an angel yeah janus it just seems like the, the book was so far ahead of its time in you know what we wound up seeing in media after the fact. As I say, I just I know I know what you're saying, and for me to go, <laughs> yeah, they all copied or something is ridiculous. <laughs> I tend to doubt that. But um, I wrote what I I wrote a story that uh, that I believed in uh, and that I cared about, and that was essentially it. Mm-hmm. Um, the fact that we were ahead of our time. Well, comics generally. Ha- up until the last 20 years, I think, have been ahead of its time. Uh, most media has followed the type of material the best of comics have done. Mm-hmm. Uh, these days, it's sort of um, the same <laughs> uh, on both sides. Uh, people are copying, people are you know, going back and forth, and I don't see comics as being always ahead of the game as it, as it used to be or as it should be in my mind. Mm-hmm. Um, I just wrote what I cared about, and... The fact that we had a very, very loyal uh, following helped because it uh, got a lot of encouragement to keep going that way. But if the sales fell, I would introduce a science fiction element or I'd introduce something else because I kept on top of that very, very carefully. So you were kind of you know, looking to see how the sales were going to determine what you would do to draw, maybe draw on some additional readers? Because I was on staff at Marvel at the time and I had access to the sales figures, I watched it very, very carefully, and every time sales would start to dip just a little bit, I I throw in some type of story to bring the readers back. Right, and that pretty much worked right to the end. Uh, we were not canceled because of uh, bad sales. Why was the book canceled then? Uh, Gene finally decided that he needed to move on. It, uh, Dracula was a very, very difficult book for him mm-hmm. uh, to draw because. It required so much work and, and, um, in terms of making the cities very realistic, uh, the large cast of characters, uh, a lot of photographic reference, et cetera, et cetera. And he had been on it for eight years. Most right. people, uh, don't do that. So he told me in advance and I said, stick on for X number of issues and we'll end it. And that's why we began immediately, the you know, within a few months, the Dracula Black and White magazine, mm-hmm. which Gene occasionally did a story for whenever he wanted to. We would never have begun the magazine if the book itself hadn't sold well. 
It's just that we knew that we couldn't continue it any longer. And I was wrapping up the story anyway, so I was just as happy. So I don't know what I would have done afterwards. (laughs) (laughs) So you kind of told the story that you were wanting to tell, and you know, it was a good. After that, it was a matter of setting stories in time and just doing uh, picking different time periods to place a Dracula story. So I wasn't really able to continue the storyline of we dealt I dealt with the characters as they had to be dealt with and it was over. Well, you know, uh comic book readers who've started reading comics in the last 10 years or so uh might not be familiar with Tomb of Dracula, but they're certainly familiar with one of the characters that you created in Tomb of Dracula, Blade. Oh yeah, him. <laughs> <laughs> I remember him. Did it surprise you to see how successful Blade became as a character outside of that comic book? It would it be immodest to say no? <laughs> I actually knew that he was a good character. I knew it from day one. It's why I took him out of the book for a while, because I wasn't totally happy with what I was writing with him. And my feeling was I had to fix the dialogue so he wasn't quite the Marvel cliche character right. uh, that he began as. And once, uh, so I took him out for a few months, then put him back when I was ready. So I was very aware he was a really solid character and a, and a very strong one. And unique in the fact, not only was he a black character, but um, he was the only Marvel-type character that did not wear a a spandex uniform. And he was definitely, you know, in a costume, but not not one that, uh, except for the bandolier of weapons, he could have walked down the street. Right. He didn't look like any other Marvel character. Now, have you been happy with the way that character has been treated over the years? I don't uh, read anything I've created after I leave it. Oh, really? So I have no idea how he's been uh, treated. I see. I did see the films, mm-hmm. and I like the first one very much. Mm-hmm. The, the others, different levels. Right. I like the second one was a good vampire story, but not a good vamp uh, blade story. And the third was a lot of fun, but it wasn't the same. Yeah, I, and I would agree with you, which I'm sure makes you happy. <laughs> um, <laughs> how could you? How could you do anything other? That, exactly. exactly. <laughs> Now, uh, as we as we move through my comic book memories, uh, um, a- another just terrific round of books that you wrote were the New Teen Titans. Thank you. And uh, you know, and, and I think that you had you had done some work with George Perez prior to that, as I recall. But a this, little bit, not much. But this was really the run that kind of married you two. Where where anytime you thought of Marv Wolfman after that, you always thought of George Perez. Yeah, I know. <laughs> it's very <laughs> strange considering I did other books as well with other artists, but obviously uh, Teen Titans and uh, New Teen Titans, I should say, and later just Titans um, was the special thing. And then, of course, Crisis. Well, and, you know, uh, Titans was just huge, you know, when it came out. And uh, I remember, you know, I, I was I was reading comics at the time and uh, – I didn't pick up the first issue because I wasn't much of a DC guy at the time, but I remember everybody talking about it. And that was, of course, back before the internets and whatnot. And uh, so I was like, well, I'll, I'll check this out. And it was hard getting a copy of that first issue. And I just remember just really grooving to that. And it was, it was really, you know, other than, you know, Superman, it was really my first uh, foray into DC comics that, that really grabbed. Oh, good. Good. You know? that's, that's very much what we intended. I mean, um, we were trying to do it. Uh, DC sales were not very uh, good at that particular point, mm-hmm. and George and I were trying to do an exciting Marvel-type comic, but with DC-type plotting. It's not a D- it's not a Marvel book. It's much more plot-driven 
uh, than a Marvel comic generally is. Marvel is more character and action, and DC was usually mostly plot. Mm -hmm. And what we tried to do was meld plot, character, and action into one book. Well, and you know when you when you look at that run of New Teen Titans, um, that is it's an iconic run. And I, I think you you often hear that word attached to it because you know here we are almost thirty years from the uh, creation of that of that first issue, and well, next year is the thirtieth anniversary. And you know that that's I mean people point back to you know those are the Teen Titans that you have to live up to. You know, those are those are those are the books that kind of set the standard. And, you know, it, it has it's become the, the gold standard of, you know, teen comic uh, superhero groups. Well, <laughs> little I could say, except I'm really pleased. I mean, it's uh, it's certainly something George and I loved. And then later, uh, Ed Barreto or Tom Grummet and uh, Jose Luis Garcia Lopez and I, uh, a number of the artists and I really loved working on the book. George and I specifically because we created it. Um, and the fact that George and I were actually good friends. Right. Still are. So in 1985, you uh, decided to destroy the universe. Uh, no, I decided to save the universe. <laughs> so tell us a little bit about how uh, things got kicked off with Crisis on the Infinite Earths. Essentially, uh, again, DC sales were not very good. And except for Teen Titans and Legion of Superheroes, they were quite bad, in fact. Uh, those two books were selling enormous amount of copies compared to everything else. And part of the problem was the continuity aspects. Uh, DC fans will argue this, saying, well, they understood all the multiple Earths and all the continuity. Yeah, but there were 11. You know, there were 11 fans, and that's it. You know, um, <laughs> the trick was, how do you do something to bring people into the universe? How do you... How do you show everybody who isn't reading DC that there were a lot of great DC characters? Because DC has phenomenal characters. Right. And the idea was simplify, get rid of all the extra stuff. The things that, as somebody who had been at Marvel for eight years, I've been editor-in-chief, I knew that a lot of the problems with DC was that people couldn't figure it out. It was mired in a continuity that was beyond belief. Uh entangled. Uh, so the idea in my mind was to start over with at day one. And part of that was unfortunately having to get rid of the uh, extra universes, uh, getting rid of extra versions of characters, giving readers a jumping off point that they can come in on the DC books and say, oh, that's a great character. I didn't know that character existed. They give DC a chance. And that's exactly what I did to sell the project to DC and they saw it as that. And, uh, you know, in many ways, the rest is history, uh, putting it together was hard because the story, nobody again had ever done anything like this before. Um, where you were going to change everything in 12 issues and every character was going to appear. People didn't know if it would work. There was a lot of, negativity that saying, you know, this is a stupid concept, uh, you, you'll lose all the DC fans, you won't gain any of the Marvel fans, and pretty much everyone was wrong. Right. It worked. There are things that I do differently, but not many. When I wrote the novelization, which is actually a pretty much an original story, but when I wrote the novelization and I reread Crisis for the first time since it had been published, 
I, even I was sort of surprised at how complex it was. Obviously, that that you know, Crisis on the Infinite Earth, that twelve issue maxi series, has had a, a huge effect on DC Comics in particular, but in you know, comics in general. Over at DC, you know, we've had numerous crises since then. Yeah, <laughs> they've, they've done two since. They did Infinite Crisis and Final Crisis. Well, an identity crisis, but it wasn't a, a crisis. Oh, yeah, but that, I, I. That was a very different type of book. I don't right. think uh, I never quite was sure why they put the number uh, that name on there, but it it stood up on its own. But you know the the uh, series was you know obviously you know ground shaking for the industry and and you know shaking for uh, DC as well. In fact, you know we continue to see stories rolling out of what you wrote you know almost twenty five years ago, um, and I'm I'm looking at uh, my dog eared copy of uh, the Crisis on Infinite Earths trade paperback, which has a, an opening essay by you. And right. uh, um, the the question in here is, did we have to kill the Barry Allen Flash? And uh, you you say, uh, we always liked Barry, so when we were asked to kill him, we planted a secret plot device in the story that which could bring him back. Have, yeah, which people are going to have to go onto my website and the questions and answers to find the answer to. Oh, do you answer uh, it on your website? Yes, I do. It's on the Q&A, and my website is moffwolfman.com. Okay, well, uh, I've answered the question so many times that I finally decided to just put it up there. You know, but I have to say that 25 years later, the answer is not only moot since uh, Jeff Johns has brought him back, right. but also something that we couldn't have done anyway today. It could have been done if he, if somebody had decided to bring him back later that year or I the see. next year, so, but not 25 years later. I see. So the further you spooled out from it, the the less applicable that resolution was or that plot device was? It becomes less important. Yeah. And there comes a point where, in my mind, it shouldn't be done whatsoever. Uh, but uh, everybody is different, and I'm glad Barry is back because I never thought he should have been eliminated in the first place. But this was something we had to do, so I tried to find a way to do it the best I could. The crisis novel, to talk about that again, is primarily a story is told by Barry Allen. Mm -hmm. It's his time in the crisis. So uh, it was something that I was very much against. But again, when you do something like that, you try to make it work no matter what you believe in. And the one-two punch of Supergirl's death and then Flash's death certainly caused a lot of people to react and to realize that the series was important. It wasn't right. just a throwaway series. Well, and and that was certainly the the startling thing in in Crisis because you know I, I you know I remember reading it and it was a series like nothing I'd ever read before and then when you get to the big Supergirl death and that that cover that you know uh, George Perez drew is just stunning and beautiful and and heartrending and then you know you get into the meat of the story because you know as comic fans we're used to the cover not telling the whole story yeah. <laughs> you know <laughs> and and then to find out that no no she's dead. That was it was pretty yeah. stunning. It was pretty stunning, and so you know it made Barry's death uh, all the more emotional and 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 important uh, when you got into the to the the subsequent chapter. Well, what we what what we wanted to do was surprise the fans, which mm -hmm. is why it was a uh, again a uh, issue seven and eight uh, back to back back to back stories. Um, but we also wanted to lead up to it. Uh, part of the reason I never wanted to see Barry uh, killed is he was the first of the Silver Age characters. And 
to me, he was one of the best characters. Mm-hmm. But that also meant that you had to be more careful about how you handled the death mm-hmm. and how you handled the character. And at the time, a lot of fans wrote in saying that his death was the most interesting Barry Allen story in a long time. And, you know, that was, that was incredibly good to hear because what it actually meant was that we had succeeded in telling the story. And, and to touch upon the emotions of a lot of fans who had given up on the, uh, on the Flash comic book. Mm-hmm. And since the whole concept of the series was to show fans how good the DC characters are, the fact that we could make both Supergirl and Flash uh, popular with people who were not buying their books and make them care about the fact that these characters died, made them care about other characters who are still around. So uh, it's one of those very tricky things to do. And even in talking about it here, it's, it gives a little bit of short shrift to it because it took a long time for me to do those stories and to set up this, set up the depths and set up the material exactly the way I wanted it. We had a couple of years to consider how to handle this, and that was the way I finally decided to go with it. So uh, I'm very pleased that it, it had the effect it did. Now, coming out of crisis, uh, were you involved in the relaunch of uh, the Superman title? Yes. And what was your involvement there? I uh, came up with a new version of Luther, uh, which is the businessman version. Uh, got rid of the stupid scientist. Uh, <laughs> got rid of the fact that he was angry at Superman because chemicals blew out his hair. All the stuff that made not a whit of sense to me when I was a kid, I just got rid of and put in as the businessman. Mm-hmm. Also introduced Cat Grant. Uh, introduced a lot of other things to the uh, to to the book. Now, were you involved? Did was what was there some kind of uh, you know group dynamic in in developing the new Superman mythos? Like, did y'all did a bunch of writers get together? Because like John Byrne wrote the origin story in Man of Steel. Yeah. Uh, was was there like a, a big group of writers who got together to talk about all that? No, um, I wish there had been. I was on Adventures of Superman. John was on Man of Steel, and then Superman. Which they renumbered as number one, and I and on adventures I kept the numbering of Superman. Mm-hmm. Uh, Thank you, by the way. I, oh, yeah, <laughs> I, I prefer original numbering. So do I. And uh, and the title, of course, was an homage to the TV show, the original mm-hmm. uh, jo- uh, George Reeves show. Right. So no, we were not part of it. John handled the origin the way he felt like it. Uh, I have to admit, I didn't like it and never refer to it. <laughs> I never had any mentions of Krypton or anything that would use any of that background because I just disagreed with it uh, virtually completely. Um, but obviously, John's was very popular, uh, far more popular than ours. So uh, he may have been right. I don't know. But I just disagreed with it. So I didn't want to have to deal with it. I also wanted to go back to the Siegel and Schuster version of Superman to a degree. We couldn't obviously go back all the way. And I disagreed with, um, say, the way Clark was handled as a total milk toast. Mm-hmm. Um, but when I talk about it, I'm talking about going back to the fact that Superman was centered more in the real world. Uh, so that the issues that I did with Jerry Ordway are all pretty much on Earth, dealing with crime, dealing with politicians, dealing with people, dealing with problems, as opposed to the big mega-type stories. 
do you have a fondness for uh, Superman's uh, powers before they just they escalated so high? Like, you know, are you a fan of the super jumping versus you know the flying? Yeah, if if I had uh, if I had my say, it would go back not quite to the very beginning because he, you know, when he was the only character around that was super, mm-hmm. but now he's one of sixteen million superheroes out there. So you can't go back all the way, right. but I would certainly uh, not have made him as powerful as he had become. Now he's not that powerful today. Uh, you know, missiles can knock him back. Um, he can be hurt, so he has been diminished, and I think that is the correct way of handling it. Mm-hmm. Uh, the more impossible you make him, uh, the the less concern the reader has about what he, what he's going through. Um, plus, you have to play him up, in my mind, as a person as opposed to an icon. And it's very simple to treat him as this great American icon, you know, Superman, but you have to remember he's a character and you have to keep and you have to make him real or as real as you can make a character like that. And that means grounding him emotionally as opposed to worrying about you know how what how big the thing is he's going to fight. Right. So my concern with Superman is always grounding him as emotionally uh, realistically as I could. What do you think are the best Superman stories? Title wise, I don't remember the titles of most of them. Or, or, but, uh, or certainly uh, the death of Superman and Alan Moore's. You know whatever happened to the Man of Steel or whatever uh, it was called. Um, again, those were stories based on character and not based on his powers. Where you see Superman. As a person, to me, that's the most interesting. Then, on the other side, I love writing the big cosmic stuff. But when I do that, I try to make it as absolutely big as I can. Right. Something nobody else could do. So, I don't like that middle ground where he's just a standard superhero. To me, every character is like that. Uh, there are just too many of them. So, you really have to play up the character. And if you're going to go big, go real big. Now, you wrote the uh, novelization for Superman Returns. And can you tell us a little bit about that experience? Um, that was fun. Uh, it was fun because the two writers of the movie asked me from the day we met, and they were incredible, by the way, uh, just working with me, to expand on all the characters, to add anything I felt like I wanted to. Um, and uh, they allowed me an incredible amount of freedom. And on top of that, and this is incredibly unusual, uh, they were the ones who proofread the novel. Oh, really? Uh, it just didn't go to a, you know some editor who had no idea. They read through it and made notes. Mm-hmm. And the notes were so minor. It had to do with a couple of very minor changes in the film since uh, I had read the script, uh, that it was wonderful. So, And they sent very, very nice letters, uh, both to me. So um, it was a really great experience. And then it won... The, uh, the, uh, there's a group called Scribe that's, uh, the novelization and tie-in writers. They're all professional writers who have for years written novelizations and tie-ins and have done hundreds of these. Uh, and there's a couple of hundred, uh, members now. And it won that year for best tie-in, uh, best novelization. So I was absolutely thrilled. <laughs> so it sounds great. Yeah. It, uh, it was, it was a complete shock to, uh, <laughs> be honest because, I had not written that much, that many novels before, uh, for this group to have done that. 
to have voted that as the best one. It was just wonderful. Funnily enough, and maybe I'm getting my dates mixed up, but didn't that come out the same year as the crisis novelization? Uh, no. no, no. Um, I don't remember exactly when the crisis novelization came came out. I believe it was probably for the 20th anniversary, but I can't. I I don't have the copy in front of me, so I couldn't tell you. Um, it came out at least a year or so later. How did the, you know, adapting, like you said, 20 years later, the crisis novelization, how did it feel kind of revisiting that story? But still, you know, you obviously put a completely fresh spin on it, a different spin on it than the original tale did. Well, when the suggestion first came up as to whether I would like to, my view was that the crisis comic could not be uh, done as a novel. It just simply couldn't be. It was designed to be a comic book. Uh, the approach of it is a comic. Novels, by their very concept, have to have a have a strong spine to them. Uh, it has to be a you have to follow X number of characters, but you have to follow them completely. The the comic was more like uh, the branches of a tree. They went in many directions, and uh, characters would come in and out and. Um, it just was not structured in any way, shape, or form to be a novel. And I said, I would do it if I could do the story following the Flash through the crisis. We'd see the, we'd see the majority of the important scenes of the crisis, but then we'd also get a very, very strong character-driven story. And they went yes, and that's what I did. You've been responsible for creating you know, some fantastic characters in your comics career. And I, what I want to do now is, is go through and just mention a character name, and then you tell us something about them, uh, a memory that you have, or you know your, your thoughts on the character. Okay, if okay. I can. Okay. So uh, Black Cat from the pages of Spider-Man. Uh, came up with her after I saw a Tex Avery cartoon called Bad Luck Blackie. Uh, about a little black cat that caused bad luck to this dog, I think it was. I forget what the story was. Kept thinking about it and thinking about it, and then I came up with a version of the character that was going to be done in Spider-Woman originally. And she wore a, she was a very 1940s looking character, um, and we actually print the cover in the first black cat, uh, Spider-Man story. Huh. Uh, I decided to leave, before I, the cover was drawn, but before I wrote the story, I decided to leave Spider-Woman and I brought Black Hat with me to Spider-Man and then changed her into an adventure character. So everything was changed about her except her bad luck powers and her name, Felicia Hardy. In fact, the name Felicia Hardy was sort of a joke because uh, Spider-Woman's name was Jessica Drew, Jessica based on my daughter, and Drew based on Nancy Drew. So if I was going to introduce a major character, I went to the Hardy Boys. Um, so uh the name came from came from there as as i say just as a joke but once it was in spider-woman i mean once it was in spider-man nobody connected it they may have connected it um if if i had left her in spider-woman well uh when i was a teenager i had a black cat poster on my wall and i want to thank you marv Thank uh, well, <laughs> yeah, she she was a favorite of mine. I really liked her. Um, Nova from Marvel Comics uh, goes back to my fan days. Uh, was a was a character published in my fanzines and brought him over to Marvel. Uh, Tim Drake from DC Comics. 
Uh, they asked me to come up with a new concept for Robin, and my view was I wanted somebody who was totally unlike any Robin in the past, uh, either Jason or Dick. And he did not want to be Batman. He wanted to be Robin. He idolized Robin. Thought it was a great. Robin was the great one, and also he had a family. Uh, I was sorry they got rid of it. Uh, the idea was to make him very different. You know, uh, Paul and I talk a lot that Tim Drake is one of our favorite characters. And oh, uh, so, again, gushing fanboy. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Bullseye from Marvel Comics. Um, my view was Daredevil can't see. Wouldn't it be great to have a character who could hit him from long distance, who could aim things at him, who could do, who could do things that Daredevil could not immediately see because if he could flick a paper clip at Daredevil and it would take a while before Daredevil would, his radar senses could pick up something like that. So the idea was to create a villain that could tax Daredevil in a way that he had never been before. Uh, Vigilante from DC Comics. Well, there's two different ones. And um, uh, that was just my trying to come up with a way of the original of deconstructing the superhero. In Daredevil, I had done a story where I think he fights Torpedo or somebody, I don't remember who, and in the course of the storyline, he they wreck, a, they wreck somebody's home. The end of the story, Daredevil, Daredevil looks at the wreckage that they had caused and for a moment realizes, my God, there's uh, repercussions to what I do. Mm-hmm. But I never continued that. The idea was to talk about a character who who starts out one way, decides, makes a um, life-changing decision and feels the repercussions from that point on and how they just weigh on him. One of my favorite character names of yours, NKV Demon. Did I do that one? That's what it says. I have no memory of it, (laughs) I have to be honest. Well, I know okay. it's a Batman character, but I don't remember that I did it. Okay. <laughs> I'm sorry. Well, how about some ones you'll remember? Uh, these are from uh, Teen Titans. Uh, Nightwing. Well, Nightwing's easy. That was trying to um, turn Robin into much more of an adult on his own. And Cyborg. Tech character, strong, uh, in a, not quite an inner city character, but somebody who was a strong character on their own. Cyborg, well, it's hard to say with him. All the Titans were created to allow me to play with something that I'd like to do. Mm -hmm. In other words, uh, no matter what type of story I wanted to write, uh, I could find one character that could be the Genesis. So you had, uh, because I get bored easily. Mm -hmm. So um, I like detective stories, so you have uh, Nightwing or Robin. I like doing space stories on occasion. You had Starfire. I like doing mythology. I love mythology. You had Wonder Girl. Horror stories were Raven. Cyborg was to do modern tech stories. Uh, and also con- uh, one of the stronger connectors to the DCU with uh, Star Labs. Changeling was to do the fun stories, just the, just the chance to be silly. So each character was very much specifically created to allow me to write whatever I felt like. Mm-hmm. and to allow me to have an access character into whatever kind of story I wanted to do. Cyborg was very much the person who, in the beginning, you think is the cliche uh, black character who was always angry, and then you realize by issue six, 
he had it all wrong or he realizes by issue six and he changes. But that was planned from the beginning. So um, he was somebody we were taking a little risk with because we started him as the cliche, but I wanted to get away from that as fast as I could. Now, what, what, one of my favorite characters, which leads into just a terrific story uh, within Teen Titans, was Tara. Can you tell us a yeah. little bit about her? Uh, the idea of Tara was to put a character in the book that the Titans, because they were basically an inclusive group, would know was a bad guy because she's you first see her trying to destroy the Statue of Liberty. She's never nice, yet they think that they could redeem her, and they apparently do without ever realizing, of course, she's completely insane mm-hmm. uh, because they don't believe in that. Um, it's a, it's the strength and the weakness of the Titans in, in that they want to believe in the best and they're not going to go that far into thinking that somebody's going to be bad just, to, just because, you know, they had been. They have characters. They've known people who have changed over time. Uh, there was no hope with Tara at all. Uh, she was psychopathic and, uh, her fate was, uh, you know, her fate was created the same moment the character was created. So it's a character that had to die. And the thing that George and I did was make sure that we never changed our mind. You know, she's one of the characters that uh, was recently uh, brought back in the pages of Blackest Night. So, you know, we have zombie Terra, uh, who's, you know, fighting a changeling and the rest of the Teen Titans. I don't know if you've seen that or not. Um, uh, we, I know that the character is out there. I don't know if it's come into our um, uh, DC bundles yet. We get mm-hmm. uh, the bundles of comics once a month from DC, and it's usually a month behind. Well, that's so nice. I'm not sure if I got <laughs> it yet. And I'm also waiting for all the Darkest Night stuff to be finished, and I'll read them all at once rather than try to maintain um, all of that stuff. Right. I tend to read. I tend to read the collections, not the not the monthlies. Sure. So, what are you doing these days? What's keeping you busy? Uh, writing video games, uh, many for DC. For instance, the um, uh, DC Universe Online game, mm-hmm. uh, and several others I can't talk about uh, because they, those haven't been announced. The DCU game has been. I'm writing a Teen Titans graphic novel with George Perez. Hopefully some other stuff as well. Uh, well, I just finished a, uh, a Brave and Bold two-parter uh, that will be out, I guess, a couple of months. Mm-hmm. Um, Who's drawing that one for you? Uh, Brent Anderson. What's the thing that you want folks to go out and read right now? Which which of your which of your your stories? Which are your books? Do you want folks to you know? Find uh, yeah, they should find all the issues of Vigilante from seven uh, seven to twelve. Incredibly pleased with them. I think they're really well done. I think they uh, they push the envelope. I think they're not at all what people expect that character to be. And unfortunately, the book is dead, but uh, those issues, I think, are just great. 12 just came out uh, okay. last week. Well, Marv, thank you so much for coming on tonight. This was this was a pleasure. I, again, it's, pleasure. It's, it's nice to gush at you. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's nice to be gushed at, but uh, I thank you. It's, you know, it's all just... It's stuff that you do because you love the, you love comics, and uh, that hasn't changed. This okay. was a lot of fun. I do appreciate it, and uh, you have a terrific holiday. You too. All right. Thanks so Thank very much. Podcast theme music graciously provided by Mark Andrew Pope. For more information, visit markandrewpope.com. Funny Books with Aaron and Polly is a production of ideologyofmadness.com. No Spider-Man clones were harmed in the production of this podcast.